Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. We don't know what's going to happen in the next 18, 24 months. We have no idea what could happen domestically or internationally that will force the hand of Congress to do something. You can't forecast certain things, but when they happen, you have to be prepared because Congress will inevitably have to rush in, or even if they don't have to, they will rush in and they will act. So you need to have some sort of a strategic plan in place already. You can't just flip a switch and say, oh, you know, we need to engage. We didn't see this one coming. That's my guest, Michael O'Brien, a managing director in PwC's U.S. Public Policy Group. With the Inflation Reduction Act signed into law and November midterm elections just wrapped up, there's so much activity going on in Washington that has the potential to impact financial reporting, either this reporting period or in the future. So we thought we'd give you an inside perspective on the goings-on in the U.S. Capitol, focusing on some of the potential tax implications and maybe some of the business opportunities that could arise out of what's going on in Washington. Michael recently joined us for PwC's third quarter accounting webcast, and he's back for another in-depth look at what's going on in U.S. public policy that may be of interest to you. He has a wealth of knowledge to share, so let's get started. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. So nice to have you on to share your insights about what happened in the midterm elections. And obviously, there was a lot of, I'm going to use the word hype leading up to the elections at what could happen, all the different scenarios. But we thought it would make sense to now that we've had a chance for almost all the dust to settle, uh, to step back and take a look and see what happened. And then the rest of our discussion is really going to get into what we actually think this means as we look at 2023 and beyond. But just to level set in case we have a listener who has somehow managed not to look at the news in the past three weeks, uh, what did happen? Well, thanks, Heather. It's great to be with you again. Uh, You know, we planned on doing this recording very shortly after the midterm elections uh, on November 8th. And we got postponed for a host of different reasons, but I think it was kind of fortuitous because it's only been a couple of days before we actually had the results somewhat, you know, certified. Uh, And that is that Republicans have won and have in fact won the majority in the House with what looks to be about a five seat margin. And it's kind of coincidental because if the final margin does hold to be 222 to 213, that would be the mirror image of the Democrats' majority this past Congress. So everybody thought it could have been bigger than that, but it looks like it's going to be the exact mirror image of what Speaker Pelosi has been dealing with for the past two years. Uh, In the Senate, uh, Democrats will maintain the majority with either 50 or 51 seats, depending on what happens in Georgia on December 6th. And that is the runoff election between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Uh, That runoff matters not just, you know, the majority is already said Democrats are going to maintain the majority, but it does matter because if it were a 50-50 tie, then the vice president has to come in and break uh, tie votes. And also, it would mean that all the committee uh, memberships, uh, that the proportions in the committees would be equally divided between Republicans and Democrats. Whereas if Democrats were able to win the special election on December 6th, they would have a 51-49 margin. That means that the committee uh, proportions would be, you know, uh, 
would be weighted heavily towards Democrats. They'd have a majority in each committee, which means nominations or pieces of legislation that we're trying to get out of committee would just need to hold all the Democrats' votes and not get what they call a discharge petition, which has to go to the Senate floor. It just It's time-consuming, cons- and it's just more complicated. So if Democrats were to win in Georgia, it does matter. Um, in the states, we had 27 out of 28 incumbent governors uh, win re-election, and you had states where maybe some of the parochial issues uh, or factors determined more partisan results. We can get into a little bit more later, but really red states tended to vote red and blue states tended to vote blue. But again, we can we can dive down deeper into that in a little bit. Um, just for an example, Michigan was a big blue wave for Democrats as they regained control of both state houses and the governor's mansion for the first time in 40 years. Whereas Florida was a big red wave as Governor Ron DeSantis scored a decisive victory there and Republicans made significant gains in places like Miami-Dade County that went for uh, Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election by more than 20 points and went more than 20 points for Governor DeSantis just a few weeks ago. So uh, it it was an interesting election. Uh, I don't think it was exactly what a lot of people thought it was going to be, but with a house in GOP hands and the Senate in Democratic hands, um, we're in line for split government for the next two years of the uh, Biden presidency. All right. Well, I definitely want to come back to the big picture of the split government, but let me ask a few follow-up questions because starting with Georgia, and if I remember correctly, we were also talking about a runoff election or two even in Georgia uh, two years ago. And so just again, to kind of refresh people, how did we wind up with another runoff? Well, in Georgia, uh, the, the state law says that in order for someone to be elected, they need to get 50 plus one. So somebody needed to get 50% plus one vote of the vote on election day. And Senator Warnock nor uh, Herschel Walker were able to uh, achieve that threshold. There was a third party candidate, which diluted some of the vote. So by Georgia state law, they then have to go to a runoff. And that's exactly what happened a couple of years ago with both of the Senate seats which both ended up going um, to Democrats, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're right here again uh, with history repeating itself. Now, back then, the majority in the Senate was um, you know, hanging in the balance, so to speak. The difference this time is the majority has already been determined uh, after Senator Cortez Masto won in Nevada, uh, you know, about a week after the election, that mm-hmm. race was called. And then that gave the Democrats the majority. So again, to my earlier point, 50-50 and 51-49, you know, there are differences, even though it's just a one vote difference. It does make a lot of difference when it comes to the day-to-day operations of the Senate. Another thing with 51-49 is just the Senate being what it is, uh, 100 individuals, uh, sometimes people get sick or they, you know, miss a flight and they can't make a vote. Democrats will have a two-vote cushion because two senators on the Democratic side could miss a vote, then it would be 49-49, and then uh, Vice President Harris could come in and break that tie. So it just, again, it seems insignificant, but it is very significant, that one vote difference, and that's going to be determined on what happens December 6th. Well, and I guess, Michael, to that point, if we even look at some of the big legislation from this past year, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act, you did see that there were concessions or changes made because of 
the fact there were exactly 50 um, and they had to kind of hold all of those votes. I guess though also in that case, you had the House. Now you're not going to have the House. You're going to have divided Congress. Uh, so I have some specific questions on the 222 to 213 and what that exactly means. But maybe more bigger picture, what does this really look like now if you have sort of shared power between the parties? Well, yeah, we have split control of government, uh, which is what most voters want with neither party having complete control. If you go back and look historically, when either party, Democrats or Republican, it is probably one of the most or only or most bipartisan facts that you can find over the past several decades is that when one party holds the White House and both houses of Congress, they tend to overreach. And then the next election, you tend to have some sort of a snapback. Sometimes it's it's a it's a bigger margin. Sometimes it's more modest, like we just had a few weeks ago. But we ended up with split control of government. And what that means is there's there is a major check mark mark against President Biden's legislative agenda. He will have to negotiate with House Republicans in order to pass really any legislation. Um, that'll obviously put a major constraint on what President Biden can achieve these next two years. For example, the use of budget reconciliation, which only needs a simple majority to pass and led most recently to the Inflation Reduction Act, which you just referenced, mm -hmm. that's gone with a House GOP majority. So that legislative tool is gone. That will not happen in these next two years. Uh, all spending measures by law will begin in the House and they'll be drafted by Republicans, meaning that compromise and negotiation will be necessary really to pass anything when it comes to appropriations. Uh, many analysts believe that this will result in gridlock and nothing of major importance will pass these next two years. Some people have said that just must pass legislation will be considered funding bills, some authorization bills. And that could be the case. But I, I think you need to look back at what passed this last Congress with strong bipartisan support and the infrastructure bill, which passed um, a couple of years ago. Uh, we had gun legislation for the first time in several years, uh, the, the CHIPS China legislation, codification of same-sex marriage, which should be taken care of this week. The Senate is actually voting on it this afternoon as we're recording this podcast. And then that bill will go back to the House where it will pass and then probably end up uh, on the president's desk by the end of the week. Uh, mm. So even though there's split control, there may be a path for bipartisan legislation to find its way to President Biden's desk. Uh, a lot also depends on external events and political coalitions that may form next Congress. So again, the, the, the kind of knee-jerk reaction would be gridlock, gridlock, gridlock. And I get that. And that, that might be the case. But depending on external factors, you never know where kind of strange bedfellows might form the necessary coalitions to get legislation passed. So, Michael, I, I think that all makes sense. And I guess just taking a step back, it sounds like perhaps this creates more incentive to find sort of the common ground between the two parties. And in some ways, perhaps that's why more voters want this divided government, because you don't go extreme either direction. Well, Heather, what I would say is that I would put it this way, common ground could be found and might just be found on certain issues moving forward. But that common ground, I don't think is because they know the voters you know, want them to come together and compromise. I think common ground could be found because the parties have gravitated to certain places on certain issues that are just not stereotypically where they've been in the past. So 
again, I don't know if this is because of a mandate by the voters to say we want you all to work together. I think this is more just because there are certain factors that have that have come about in the last several years that have made Republicans and Democrats more aligned on certain issues. So um, specifically, I would say that in the last few years, what we've seen in each party is a certain form of populism. And that has resulted in a shift in what many would see as the traditional platforms for each party. This shift has resulted in what you describe as, as I said earlier, kind of strange bedfellows for members in opposite parties on certain issues. And this is, and I know we'll talk about this later, but I think this is a good spot to discuss what companies and kind of constituencies could be and should be doing in this new split government environment. So whereas a traditional viewpoint may be not to worry about potential public policy risks due to this split government, again, the gridlock that we discussed, the reality, the reality is companies should be as alert, attentive, and informed as ever during these next two years. And let me be specific on issues such as uh, privacy, big tech, China, uh, obviously cryptocurrencies are very hot right now. We have seen both Republicans and Democrats align on legislation addressing concerns in these areas. And that is just an example of a, hand, of a handful of issues. Uh, moreover, as we said earlier, external events like we have seen in crypto can impact and influence government response. So this can happen in any sector. So I would say that increased diligence from the corporate community is going to be imperative in these next couple of years. This is not the time to be lax or to kind of be passive because you think that, you know, oh, nothing's going to happen in Washington and split control. Uh, I think quite the opposite could be true. All right. So I definitely I want to come back to this sort of broad question of what we're going to see nationally. But I do first want to follow up and maybe diverge for a moment into state politics, because you made the point that 27 and 28 governors, uh, incumbent governors were reelected. So specifically have a question for you on whether that is common. And then my second question would be is I, you know, after all the elections, there's lots of press about the fact that each states kind of went directionally further, maybe of where they were. And you kind of alluded to this, you know, Florida went very red, Michigan went very blue, and sort of a discussion of depending where you live now in the country, it may actually have more influence on your day to day life. So that's sort of the opposite of this idea of divided government. And it's like in state politics, almost going you know, more partisan. So just curious if there is anything here that voters or listeners, you know, should be thinking about or aware of, or it's just something we saw with this election. Well, I think there's a few different, you know, places we can take that. I think that this was an election where traditionally the first midterm election for the party in power does not go well for the party in the White House. Uh, usually there's an average of 28 seats lost in the House and a couple of seats in the Senate. So I think as we got closer and closer to Election Day, I think people got a little bit kind of drunk on some of the national data that was coming in and people assumed that we were headed for that similar result. But I think as you dig down a little further into the data, again, with the benefit of hindsight, I think what matters is issues mattered, and this is specifically locally, as, as you just mm -hmm. uh, as mentioned, and candidates mattered. Um, on the issues front, 
voters that put inflation, the economy and crime as priorities tended to vote Republican. And those voters that felt democracy was still at risk and that candidates were you know, looking backwards instead of looking forward and uh, voters who were concerned with abortion rights, you know, they tended to vote for Democrats. So I think that issues and candidates mattered, and specifically on the candidate front, many of these first-time Republican candidates, especially in the Senate level, which is, you know, it's tough to run statewide for your mm-hmm. first ever run for public office. And they focused a lot of their rhetoric on past bat- battles, such as the validity of the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they ended up losing. And Republicans that, especially at the gubernatorial level, that based their candidacy on future policy platforms, they tended to win easily. So I think that after a chaotic few years, several years maybe, uh, voters tended to vote for stability in this past election, despite concerns over the economy and inflation. And that's what I said earlier. If you look, red states tended to vote red and blue states tended to vote blue. So I think faced with with kind of chaos, voters kind of uh, wanted to go more towards stability. You know, there was a, 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 a tendency to, to flock towards safety as opposed to take a risk on some of these newer candidates. And I think that's why, you know, all politics is local. A lot of this went down to the state level. And that's why you had such a huge incumbent reten- uh, retention rate. Uh, we'd mentioned the governors, but also in the Senate, there were 28 Senate incumbents. And of those 28 Senate incumbents, all 28 won re-election. So wow. just, just just by, you know, statistics, yes. that, that's pretty striking. Uh, and then in the House, those House members, Republicans and Democrats, that ran for re-election, 97.5 won re-election. So those are striking numbers. Um, so again, I, I, I think that issues mattered and candidates mattered. And a lot of this became a little bit more localized. Yeah, well, and I definitely those points on this, the um, re-election rate, I guess I had not focused on or maybe they haven't been as covered in the press. But that really does suggest that people want the familiar and, you know, have hopes for um, maybe what can be accomplished in the next two years. So if we then turn our attention back to sort of what this means, then when we think about national politics, in particular, I think there's going to be a lot of questions um, from our listeners on what this means for the SEC and the PCOB. You referenced the, what happened with crypto, but and you know you have the climate proposal that's out there. We know that they have other um, plans to issue proposed rules on human capital, for example. So, do we think that there is going to be any impact on the SEC agenda from you know this? this change in uh, control of Congress? Well, when it comes to the regulatory process, there are two factors. One is oversight. And that is, you know, an area where kind of the prognosticators are pretty much spot on. The GOP House majority is going to spend a lot of time these next two years on oversight. Uh, You know, some of that's going to undoubtedly look at more political matters, which, you know, I don't know that they're particularly germane to, to the, the country's best interest moving forward, but that'll happen, you know, the, the whatever. We don't have to go into those issues. But the other thing is going to be oversight in the regulatory area. And specifically, let's just stick with the SEC. I think that Commissioner Gary Gensler, 
will be, you know, up before House committees with some sort of regularity. And what the, the effort there is, is to is to try and slow down the regulatory process. So President Biden was elected for four years. Gary Gensler will be at the SEC for the next several years if he so chooses. They will continue to regulate. As I've said in past uh, podcasts, regulators will keep regulating. Uh, the midterm elections have nothing to do with who's atop the, the regulatory agencies, and, and their mandate will continue. They will continue to put forth regulations and, and, uh, and the such. But where the House majority comes into play is that they will try and basically to throw sand in the gears of that process as much as they can. And that's through the oversight uh, and also through the appropriations process. They will try and to the best they can to defund certain initiatives that, you know, they believe are outside the scope of specifically the SEC. And the climate rule is probably example number one, human capital not far behind it. Now, with Republicans only controlling the House and not controlling the Senate or the White House, they're not going to be able to do that. Uh, obviously, you're going to need some sort of compromise between Democrats and Republicans as, as the government funding issue moves forward. But what Republicans t- can do is just kind of go to the negotiating table with a couple more chips on their side um, and, and try and negotiate as best they can. So this process will move forward. We expect that climate rule to come out sometime in the first quarter of next year. Um, you know, all of that process will move forward. Where it's going to get interesting is where the House oversight function comes in. And again, they're going to they'll have subpoena authority, so they'll be able to subpoena the SEC, other regulatory agencies, to to you know force them to come up to Capitol Hill and to testify on all of these things. And what it does is it just eats up time. I mean, there's you know there's 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 human human capital so to speak there's human hours there's 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 workforce issues and if they have to concentrate on going before a house committee you know every other week about whatever regulatory uh rule that they're putting forth then it just slows down the process and that's precisely what house republicans want to do as they you know hope for the 2024 presidential election you know cre- uh, delivering a different result So then, Michael, you know, that's an interesting perspective in terms of what the House will do. We get so focused on the Senate and that even one seat matters. But then in the House, who said it would be 222 to 213, which seems like a big majority in a way for Republicans. And it does it play out that way or with so many members, nine maybe isn't such a big majority. No, I mean, it's not. It's a very small majority. Um, You're basically looking at five votes. If five votes were to go the wrong way and Democrats were to hold all of their votes, then, you know, you wouldn't be able to pass legislation. What I think is going to be interesting is, you know, you have leadership elections coming up in the beginning of January. The, the, The kind of common thought right now is that Kevin McCarthy will be the new Speaker of the House, but it's by no means guaranteed because he's facing divisions within his own party, mm-hmm. specifically from the more conservative faction of the Republican Party. But that doesn't mean that moving forward, it won't be moderate Republicans that might cause some some heartburn for leadership. What I also think is going to be interesting is with such a narrow majority, Again, to our earlier point about on certain issues, Republicans and Democrats, where generally you would have thought they wouldn't find common ground, could in fact find common ground. Mm -hmm. So what would happen if you had more moderate 
Democrats and more moderate Republicans were to coalesce around a certain viewpoint on a piece of pivotal legislation and then kind of form a voting block that says, you know, we won't go, we won't move forward without this particular piece of that legislation being considered or, you know, so on and so forth. So uh, I do think that it's going to be interesting seeing how the leadership of both parties, really, but more so Republicans, because they're going to control uh, the agenda in the House, how they're going to navigate such a narrow majority. Um, and then again, as we talked about in the Senate with that one vote, two vote, again, 435 members in the House, things happen, you know, life happens. Mm-hmm. Just last night, um, a congressman from uh, from Virginia, Don McEachin, uh, passed away tragically from colorectal cancer. So we don't have 435 already. We haven't even come to the to the next Congress. Mm-hmm. We've already lost a member. So now we're at 434. These things just happen. We're coming off of a pandemic where, where COVID mm-hmm. impacted voting constantly. So when you're dealing with such narrow numbers, anything that could happen could kind of upset the natural order of things. So it is going to be very interesting to see how how the leadership moves forward with such a narrow majority. And again, if you want example, number one, look at the leadership elections the first week of January and see if Kevin McCarthy does in fact become speaker. And if he becomes speaker, how difficult was the process? Because Mm -hmm. he's already had, I believe, six members of the Republican caucus who said they won't vote for him. Uh, He can afford to lose, let's see, uh, I guess eight Eight meaning, oh, so. well, eight meaning could, they could vote present. And that would be the kind of the thought is that they're not going to vote for Hakeem Jeffries, who is going to be the minority leader uh, if, if, after the Democrats have their leadership elections. It's believed that he'll be the minority leader. These Republicans aren't going to vote for him, but what they'll probably do is vote present. So if you lost eight Republicans, it would knock you down to 214. And then Democrats have 213, or now they have 212. So it just means how many that that uh, that Kevin McCarthy could lose when the full House votes for Speaker in the first week of January. Because unlike in the Senate, where it's just a caucus vote, meaning just Republicans and just Democrats vote for their own leaders, the Speaker of the House is voted by the entire House. So he needs to get 218 or he needs to get a majority of the members present and voting. So. You know, when you mention that, and I don't know if that is from our founding fathers that they set it up that way, but obviously a lot of the way government is set up was designed in, you know, 1770s, 1780s. Kind of amazing that 250 years later, you know, it still has the flexibility to deal with all of the things, you know, that we're dealing with. So um, very elegant if, if you take a step back and look at it from that perspective. Yeah, it is. It, it is interesting. And I've told a lot of people when having discussions on this topic that, you know, our founding fathers wanted a representative Congress. So when people question whether or not, you know, who we have in Congress and why we have them on either side of the aisle, uh, I always say that they wanted the people to decide. They wanted uh, to have a representative Congress, and that's what we have. So we have 435 of the of the people that represent this incredibly diverse country. And that's the way that the founding fathers wanted it. And actually, I think this is a good time to just note the, the voter participation a few weeks ago. Uh, 47% of eligible voters participated in the midterm elections. And that puts the 2022 midterm elections in the top five 
for voter participation in a midterm dating all the way back to 1920. And I thought that wow. was fascinating. So, you know, there's been so many concerns and, and so many opinions on the voters' ability to participate in, in elections. And I would just say that democracy won on November 8th. The voters spoke and the results are what they are. And, you know, it was a good night for democracy. It was a good night for, for the American voters. Um, now, I, I can't mention that without also saying that the fact that our participation rate is under 50% is uh, troubling. Uh, countries like Australia have a voter participant rate that is uh, almost 100%, but I think that might be a topic for another podcast. Yes, definitely sounds like it. Although I do think it, it's notable. We had our uh, LA mayoral mayoral election, and I, I read even though it's very, wound up fairly close that the winner did have the most votes that have ever been sort of for uh, the mayor, because again, the voter participation rate was so high. So it's definitely a positive from that point of view. All right. So if we go back then to thinking about the regulatory agenda, you did run through some of what we thought we would see coming from sort of by the Biden administration's agenda, but anything else that you wanted to highlight there that we didn't get a chance to touch on already? With regard to the regulatory agenda? Yeah, just like what we, or even just more broadly, what we think they're going to try to accomplish or what he may be able to accomplish over the next two years. Well, uh, you know, President Obama, I think, put it really well after he had a, a very rough midterm election. And he had said that he was going to use the phone and the pen in order to get his agenda, you know, accomplished, even though there was split government or he was facing uh, Republicans in control of both, uh, both chambers and the House and the Senate. And what he meant was that he was going to use the phone. He was going to, uh, you know, call upon his regulatory agencies and regulatory heads to move forward with their rulemaking uh, agendas and their uh, uh promulgate as many rules as they could. And then also his pen. And that means that by executive action. And we've seen that it has been a trend in the past several uh, administrations, both Republican and Democrat, in that executive orders are a way to try and push your agenda forward as best you can while staying within the rule of the law. And that's why a lot of these executive orders end up in court, because there's a question of whether or not they usurp legislative authority, um, you know, by using executive action. Uh, you've seen just recently with the forgiveness of the student debt that is now in the courts. And that's a perfect example of whether or not the power to do that did lie within the executive branch or did they need congressional authority to do that? I think you'll see that moving forward in a host of other areas. And not trying to be cynical, but I think that maybe some would think, why not give it a try and, and use executive authority as much as you can? And if it gets challenged in court, it gets challenged in court. But what you're doing is you're you're making it pretty pretty public that this is what you believe to be good policy and you're going to push it as best you can with kind of every tool that you have in your arsenal. Uh, so I think you'll see that from President Biden. And then again, to our earlier point, the, the, the regulatory agencies, they, they're not going to skip a beat. Um, you know, again, I don't want to be a cynic or, or speak for those agencies, but I don't think they care about the midterm elections. You know, the, the, the presidential administration is a four-year term. President Biden won in 2020. 
And by that victory, he has the right to put personnel at those regulatory agencies for four years. And he has done so, he will do so, and they will continue to push forward with their agenda as they should. And then Congress will utilize its oversight capabilities as they should. So it will slow down a little bit. But I think when you look at the SEC, as we've kind of used that as an example, just look at the top five or six or seven or eight or 10 priorities. And I don't think anything's going to stop there. Mm -hmm. I think that they're going to keep moving forward just as they would, you know, with or without a Democratic majority in the House or the Senate, uh, that their mandate is to do exactly what the administration wants in those areas. So I think you'll see those rules put forth. I think that you know, they'll be challenged in court just as they would, regardless of who controls Congress. And again, back to the point that we discussed earlier, the only difference is, you know, maybe they won't have the ability to put all those man hours into that process because some of that is going to, some of that bandwidth is going to be pulled away in order to deal with subpoenas and oversight and things like that. So, Michael, if we take a step back and think about this idea of executive order and combined with the action of the regulatory agencies, you know, we did see on, I think it was November 14th, I guess is when it got published, maybe November 10th is when it was um, proposed that some of the agencies are proposing climate disclosure rules for federal contractors. And, you know, that's a proposal that's out there right now, a 60 day comment period. And, but that is in response to an executive order, I think from 2021. So is that the type of thing that you are thinking of when we see that they're kind of using maybe these other ways? So maybe the SEC's climate proposal is moving more slowly or whatever's going to happen with that. But now we see this other climate proposal coming out. Absolutely. And I, that's a perfect example. And I think that, that also what that does is even if you look at some of the proposals that might be coming out of the SEC in the near term, what it does is it, is it pushes the corporate community to start to face realities with regard to, let's just say, climate disclosures. Um, basically, you say that like, like this, this is where we as an administration, we as maybe a country are headed, and you need to start considering it. You need to start acting uh, as a result of it. You need to start putting this into your calculus as you strategize moving forward, knowing that this is the new reality, if you will. Now, even if you know, a court were to push back on the administration and say, no, you know, in this particular case, you did not have the authority to do that. Again, not trying to put myself in their shoes or speak for them, but I think that maybe part of the goal has been achieved to kind of move the ball down the field a little bit, even if they might get pushed back by the courts. It's this general push towards greater disclosures, towards uh, a, beta, a greater responsibility when it comes to ESG issues and so on and so forth. And politically, you can you can have differences of opinions there, but Democrats currently control this administration and the regulatory agencies, and they're going to use, again, every tool to push forward. And even if there are setbacks, I think what they want to do is send the message that this is where we are headed. This is the future. You and the corporate community need to recognize that and, and start to act accordingly. So, yes, absolutely. And I think the example you provided is a great one with regard to federal contractors. 
All right, great. And then for our listeners who wanted to know more about that, we did release a podcast last week uh, where I interviewed Valerie Weeman, and we talked more about that proposed rule. And if you are a federal contractor, the thresholds for disclosure are going to be relatively low, $7.5 million in awarded contracts. So uh, it's something you may want to pay attention to. Michael, let me change focus slightly. And you know, we are talking about the Congress that will be in place in 2023, but obviously there is still time between now and then for the lame duck Congress to take action. So anything um, specific that you would highlight that you would expect to happen in let's say the next month or so? Yeah. I mean, that they're, they're back in town, uh, you know, this week um, in this last week of November, first week of December. And there are lots of things that Congress would like to get done, but, that doesn't necessarily necessarily mean that they will be completed. Uh, what we know is that certain things will get done. The National Defense Authorization Bill, the NDAA, uh, will be completed at some point, uh, and and there will be some sort of mechanism to fund the federal government. As as of this recording, uh, I don't know where that's going to end up. Uh, funding will run out on December sixteenth. There are a lot of different ideas out there. Having some sort of short-term funding bill that would get us into the new year, into the next Congress, uh, putting together some sort of an omnibus funding bill that would, you know, uh, encapsulate all of the appropriations bills and become kind of a new funding measure for for the for the next year, for the next fiscal year. Or just recently, there has been talk that if all else fails, they might do a continuing resolution, which is what we're on right now since September 30th, through the end of this fiscal year. And that's kind of big news because if they did a CR, a couple of different things. One, a CR just continues the funding levels of the previous year. So we would just be taking the levels that were agreed upon last year and just pushing them all the way through September 30th of next year. That you know, I don't think Democrats would love that. It would kind of be their last option because they're going to lose a certain amount of power come January. I think they would want to push for some of their priorities in a new funding bill and not have to rely on these past numbers of the last year. And then secondly, uh, there hasn't been a defense appropriations bill, and we've never had DOD funded through a CR. It's always been some sort of bipartisan agreement that defense levels need to increase. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. If they end up with a CR, what do they do with the DOD budget? Um, and if they don't end up, end up with a CR, what are we looking at? A short-term bill or something to go, you know, like I said, an omnibus spending package. Now that will probably be, as they say, quote unquote, the last train out of the station. So if there's any other kind of bipartisan legislation that needs to pass or they want to get passed, sometimes people will attach that to that omnibus, just knowing that it obviously has to pass in order to fund the government. Uh, as we discussed early earlier, the uh, same-sex marriage codification legislation is, I think, pretty much a certainty at this point, currently being debated in the Senate as we speak. And then we'll go back to the House when it passes the Senate. And then I think all signs point to that being signed by President Biden by the weekend. Uh, there's also been talk about the debt ceiling, addressing it now. It, it, Treasury has said that it doesn't look like it's going to become an issue until probably in the spring, but it's it's a very political issue. And I think that there are members of both parties that would like to dispense with it. But again, it's kind of a political hot potato. So how you dispense with it is, is um, 
So you have to be very careful. It's very delicate. So whereas a couple of weeks ago, they thought that maybe the debt ceiling would be addressed during this lame duck, the, the latest kind of intel is that it probably won't be, that they'll probably have to punt it to next year. So back to our conversation about Speaker, possible Speaker McCarthy or the Republican leadership with a very narrow majority, that debt ceiling is going to be a very difficult issue to have to deal with when inevitably they have to, uh, as I said, looks like maybe spring of next year. Uh, other things that are just hanging out there are tax extenders. Uh, there's a thought that some sort of compromise will be reached before the end of the year. Cannabis banking bill, antitrust reform, retirement legislation. Those are things that are just all in the discussion. I'm not confident that really any of those might uh, might pass by the end of the year, but they're in the conversation. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of action between now and the end of the year. Uh, one of the things they even talked about for this funding is doing a short-term extension from December 16th to December 23rd. So Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays from Congress uh, dealing with budget issues all the way up until almost Christmas Eve. Yeah, that's, I mean, if you, you know, we're recording this, I think November 29th. So there's not much time left between now and the end of the year. And that is a lot to accomplish. So it'll be interesting. I guess it'll be a jam packed month to see, you know, kind of what happens. So Michael, maybe a final question. Um, obviously, I've been asking you questions just to kind of talk about the overall environment. And I think, you know, sort of interest clearly to our listeners, but really they're looking at it through this lens of if you're taking if you're a company or corporation and you know CFO or in the finance organization, how do you think about all of this uncertainty? So you gave a lot of what could happen. I don't think we really know what will happen. And that's a lot for companies to manage, especially in the context of the broader worldwide. There's a lot of different factors going on. So what advice do you give as you're talking to companies about how to sort of think about the current times? I say be diligent, uh, be engaged, do not get caught flat-footed. Uh, again, certain stereotypes about Congress, about the individual political parties, I think we are, I think they are, they are dated and, and they are not to be re re relied upon. I think that you need to, through your own corporate function, through trade association, through whatever means it might be, you need to engage with policymakers, with staff. Uh, in the Senate, when January rolls around, more than a third of the Senate will have served in the Senate six years or less. In the House in January, more than half of the House will have served in the House six years or less. Wow. That's a lot of new faces. And that's a lot of individuals who are going to be making very big decisions who might not be familiar with your mm -hmm. corporation or your sector or your field. So I would just make sure that there is engagement um, because as we've seen, again, we talked about where there could be compromise in the future. And one of the factors was, you know, external events. We don't know what's going to happen in the next 18, 24 months. We have no idea what could happen domestically or internationally that will force the hand of Congress to do something. Again, we're talking about crypto just because it's kind of fresh on everybody's minds. You can't forecast certain things, but when they happen, you have to be prepared because Congress will inevitably have to rush in, or even if they don't have to, they will rush in and they will act. So you need to have some sort of a strategic plan in place already. You can't just flip a switch and say, 
oh, you know, we need to engage. We didn't see this one coming. You need to have a plan already set up so that when the inevitable happens, you are ready then to engage. Uh, so I would say that make sure you get to know these new members of Congress, get to know the, the current members of Congress and be prepared uh, and be diligent and do not get caught flat footed. Because again, with history as our guide and recent history as our guide, anything can happen at the kind of drop of a hat. All right. Well, Michael, I think that's a good note to end on because definitely good advice for our listeners, probably any citizens of this country, maybe more generally. So as always, Michael, such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me today. It was great to be with you, Heather. Look forward to the next time we can talk. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.